have a Bible handy, I encourage you to open to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and that will serve as our sermon text for today. We will not have time to cover everything in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, so I have selected a reading from John 4 to help us focus on one particular theme in this story. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand and give your undivided attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And if you would like to follow along, you may read along in your worship order. The Word of God says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, 
It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Word of God. May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word, and all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this story is well known to most of you. And assuming that it's well known to most of you, I want to tell you things that are in the story that are not so easily seen at first glance in the story, rather than rehash the story and tell you what you already know or what you can easily see in the text. But after you see the things that I'm going to show you today, you will wonder why you never saw them before or how you could have overlooked them so easily. I'm not going to burden you with all the nitty-gritty details of the text, but I want to tell you, so suffice it to say, that there was bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. To understand what I mean by bad blood, think about the bad blood between whites and blacks in America, especially before the Civil Rights Movement. Or think about the bad blood between far radical right-wing conservatives and brown-skinned immigrants. Bad blood. To put it mildly, Jews considered Samaria the wrong side of the tracks. They were in the bad part of town. Jews had one water fountain. Samaritans had their own water fountain. The Samaritans were a radically... I'm sorry, they were a racially mixed group of people, partly Jewish, partly Gentile. They were the stray dogs and the Heinz 57 mutts of their day. In our time, they would have been called mestizos or mulattoes or mudbloods. They were hated by both Jews and non-Jews alike. The Samaritans were also a religiously mixed group of people. They intermingled their own religious tradition, interpretation, and superstition with Jewish traditions. They had their own version of the Bible. The only thing they had in their Bible were the first five books that is called the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses. They had their own worship center on Mount Gerizim. They had their own way of worshiping God. And they had their own version of Israel's story, or I should say God's people, God's history with His people. So in a nutshell, Samaria was a multicultural, pluralistic melting pot. It was like a really uncool version of America. And yet, for some reason, Jesus felt that it was necessary to pass through there. When your scripture says he had to pass through there, it means it was necessary for him to do so. So on his way through Samaria, Jesus and his disciples stop at Jacob's well near the town of Sychar. Now, I won't go into great detail about this. You can look at my notes on this later if you'd like and research this farther. But what you're going to see is that this region, Mount Gerizim, Sychar, the well, all of that was an important part of Israel's history. 
This is the place where Jacob dug a well. This is the place where Joseph went looking for his brothers. This is the place where Joseph was buried when Israel came into the promised land. All of that happened thousands of years before Jesus showed up at the well. So when Jesus sat down by the well in Samaria, he was sitting where his forefathers had once lived and moved and existed. He sat there not because he was trying to visit the family cemetery or that he was trying to go to a museum. He sat there because he was weary. John wants us to see that the Word made flesh was a real man who experienced fatigue and thirst and hunger just like the rest of us. Now it was the sixth hour when a woman from Samaria showed up to draw water from the well. And the fact that she went to draw water at noon instead of early in the morning has led many preachers, me included, to assume the worst about her. That she must have been a terrible, horrible person. A scandalous woman with a flaming scarlet A on her chest. I used to assume the worst about her as well, but you know what happens when you assume. Personally, I think we've all been too hard on this woman. I think it shows that we're hyper-judgmental, that we tend to be more critical than compassionate, and maybe we don't take the time to get to know people the way we should. So I want to take some time today to help you see this woman perhaps in a different light. First of all, I want you to know that there is nothing at all unusual about drawing water at the sixth hour. There is no fixed time for drawing water. What is unusual about this woman and the sixth hour, about her drawing water when she did, is that she is all alone in doing it. That's the thing that we should see. Drawing water was a communal event. It was a community activity. So all the women would draw water, but she's by herself. So in reality, we should be more concerned about the fact that she's doing it alone than the fact that she's doing it at noon. Now, it's obvious from our reading of the story that there is something terribly wrong in her life. That there is something broken beyond repair. But you can't gather that by seeing that she went at noon to draw water. You get that from other parts of the story. In other words, she is a sinful woman, but she is not the most sinful woman in the world. In fact, she appears to be a deeply spiritual woman who also happens to be both strong and smart and sassy. Have you known any women like this in your life? She's strong because she draws water from a well that is a hundred feet deep. And she hauls it in clay jars a mile back to her town at the sixth hour of the day, no less. She's smart because she knows a thing or two about culture and history and religion. So if you read the story, think about the way she talks about social norms and taboos and worship wars and messianic figures. She's sassy because she's quick on her feet and seems to enjoy a little, little bit of snarky verbal sparring. 
And she's spiritual because she talks about the things of God intelligently and she perceives far more than meets the eye. So was she a saint? No, I'm not arguing that she was a saint. I'm arguing that she was a sinner just like you and just like me. But I'm saying there's more to her than meets the eye. How do we know she was a sinner? Well, we know it because we find out in the story that she's been married five times and she's now living with a man who was not her husband. And this is a very sore spot with her. It's a tender area of her life. She is sensitive to it and she wants to avoid talking about it at all costs. So again, most commentaries will focus on the fact that she's had five divorces and she has a live-in boyfriend but they overlook the other things of her life. And I'm arguing that that's not treating her fairly. I mean, where are the men? Why, is, why doesn't anyone call into question all of those husbands? There's more to her story than meets the eye. Just like there's more to your story than meets the eye. Imagine how this woman must have felt in that culture at that time. How she must have felt about her life situation. She's had five failed marriages. So imagine along with that coming all the anger and all of the sorrow, the guilt and the shame, the confusion and the loneliness. All of these things she's carrying around with her day after day after day. A few days ago I spoke with a couple of female seminary students about this story to get their perspective. And one of the students said to me that in light of her experience and where she comes from, the community that she comes from, the Samaritan woman actually seems like a normal person who has simply experienced a very crappy life. In other words, she knows a lot of women who are in the same life situation as the Samaritan woman. Not because the women are so bad, but because some of the men are. Now to put that in perspective for you, think of it this way. The Samaritans lived by the law of Moses and they considered themselves the keepers and the guardians of the law. The word Samaritan actually means something like keeper. So according to a strict keeping of the law, the Samaritan woman could not have been the one who initiated divorce with her five husbands. They had to be the ones to initiate the divorce. And each of them could have divorced her for any and every reason under their interpretation of the law. The law of God says if a woman finds no favor in the eyes of a husband because he finds some indecency in her, all he had to do was to write her a certificate of divorce, put the, the certificate in her hand, and send her out of his house. It's that phrase, some indecency, that was taken by some people to mean any and every reason. When in reality, in the context of the law, it simply had to do with some kind of sexual impropriety or sexual immorality. But they took it to mean any and everything. It was a blank check on, if you don't like this woman for something, you can get rid of her. She's had five husbands, which means that she was either sent away with five certificates of divorce or that maybe some of those men died and then others gave her a certificate of divorce. So either way you look at it, she is a divorcee and possibly even a widow. 
She's an unwanted woman who has been used and perhaps abused by several different men in her life. And to make matters even worse, she's now living with a man who is unwilling to make her his wife or to commit to being her husband. She's an easy target for people, but I think we need to wonder about the men in her life as well. Why did those men divorce her? It was not for adultery. If there were strict keepers of the law, for if she had committed adultery, it is likely that she and her lover would have been punished and stoned to death, according to the law. So they must have found some other indecency in her, something that was offensive. Maybe she was a bad cook. Maybe she was a know-it-all. Maybe she was a quarrelsome woman. But whatever the case, they found something in her they didn't like. She did not find favor in, her, in their eyes. And they sent her away. Now here's the remarkable part of the story. Here's the tipping point. She goes out to a well at the sixth hour and she meets a man, a stranger. And she finds favor in the eyes of that man. She finds favor in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now over the past few weeks, we've been watching the Word made flesh for the life of the world. And what have we seen over the last few weeks? In the context of John's Gospel, we have seen Jesus attend a wedding and fill jars with water and turn the water into wine and celebrate marriage. And we have heard Jesus described as the bridegroom coming to save His bride. He comes to a sinful, adulterous people and declares in the words of the prophets, You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called. My delight is in her and your land is married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And again, the prophet said, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy and in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. In other words, you will find grace in the eyes of the bridegroom. This is how God loved the world. He sent His one and only Son into the world to kill the dragon and get the girl. And that is precisely what Jesus is doing in this story. This is why it was necessary for Him to pass through Samaria. In this story, Jesus comes in the love of God to propose marriage to this Samaritan woman. Not an earthly, temporal marriage, but a heavenly, eternal marriage. This is His way of saying to her, I love you. In this story, we hear echoes of many Old Testament stories. Let me frame it for you like this. The Samaritan woman is like Rebecca, who gave Eleazar the servant water from her jar. And Jesus is like the true and better Eleazar who gave her gifts and worshipped God. 
She is like Ruth the Moabite woman, a foreigner, an immigrant, an outsider. And Jesus is like the true and better Boaz, her kinsman redeemer who promises to fill her belly, her heart with living water. She is like Gomer, the unfaithful wife who went looking for love in all the wrong places. And Jesus is like the true and better Hosea who takes a wife of whoredom. He is the Lord who allures her and brings her into the wilderness and speaks tenderly to her. She is like her mother Samaria who played the whore with many lovers and worshipped false gods on every high hill and under every green tree. But Jesus is like the true and better Master who says, Return, O faithless Samaria. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreign gods and that you have not obeyed my voice. Return, for I am your Master. I am your husband. In this story, Jesus is the bridegroom who comes into the world to take a bride for Himself from all the nations of the world. And He will pay the bride price for her by laying down His life and by taking it up again for her. So a woman comes to draw water at the sixth hour. Like her forefathers, her lifestyle shows that she has forsaken the fountain of living waters and she has hewn out for herself broken cisterns that cannot hold water her theme song could have been her theme song could have been the song I hear on the radio quite often my exes and oh oh oh's they haunt me like the go oh oh's they want me to make them whole, 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 they won't let go, X's and O's. In other words, she's been looking for love in all the wrong places. And even when she comes to the well, she still hasn't found what she's looking for. And it's in this moment that Jesus proposes to her in the love of God. Everyone who drinks of this earthly water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the heavenly water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The heavenly water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life from the inside out. Now Jesus makes it clear in the story that in order to receive this gift of God, All she has to do is ask for it. She doesn't have to hold out her hand. She doesn't have to fill up a water jar. She doesn't have to sign a card. She doesn't even have to pray a special prayer. All she has to do is acknowledge that she is thirsty and ask Christ for a drink. And in response to all of this, the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. And when He comes, He will announce all things to us. Which was her very polite way of saying, it's been good talking to you, but I got to go. Peace. To which Jesus says, Ego eimi. I am the one who speaks to you. Which was His 
crafty way of saying, not so fast. This is your burning bush moment. So the woman drops her water jar. She runs to town and says, I think I might have found the Christ. Several years ago, a woman came to see me in my office. She lived across the street from the church where I served. She lived there for several years. She never had visited the church. She ran a convenience store in our small town, and we became friends when I took her side against a group of local pastors who were trying to boycott her store. We were neighbors, and it was no secret that this woman was a worldly woman. She was a party animal. To put it mildly, she was very wise in the ways of the world. So one day she comes to my office, crying her eyes out, confessing all kinds of sin, and she keeps saying to me over and over, I just wish I could start all over again. But it's too late. In response to her stories, I shared a couple of stories of my own from the Gospel of John. She was skeptical of the stories and asked to see them for herself, so I handed her my Bible and she sat there across from my desk reading for a few minutes. And then she finished and she closed the Bible and handed it back to me. And she said, well, that's just way too easy. No, that's too good to be true. And then she stood up and thanked me for my time and went back home. And a few weeks later, she professed faith in Jesus Christ. She confessed Jesus is Lord with her mouth. And I baptized her in water. The gospel does seem too easy. It does seem too good to be true. Especially when you compare it to walking out to a watering hole and drawing water from a well day after day. Expending all of that time and energy. Or when you compare it to walking around with the guilt of all your past failures and the shame of your broken life and the lonely feelings that life has perhaps passed you by or the regrets of a thousand mistakes. Yes, Compared to that, the gospel seems way too easy and too good to be true. Receiving the stream of living water from Jesus Christ takes you no time. It requires no effort from you. It costs you nothing. The only thing you must do, if you can even classify it as doing anything, is to come thirsty and to drink freely. The authors of a book called Bold Love say, the cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing. And no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. Something within me that feels noble longs for a religion that requires repayment. I may like an occasional free gift, but I cannot bear the loss of pride and swagger that occurs when I give my life and nothing is required. Grace is free, and that is disturbing. 
It is so distressing, in fact, that most who receive it work hard to find some way to preserve their arrogance by laborious piety. The often sincere but arrogant penance, in many cases, serve to retain their false pride and in turn obligate God to act on their behalf. The gift of God is free, gratis, totally without cost. The only question is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty enough to lay down your jars? Are you thirsty enough to pour out your earthly water? Are you thirsty enough to turn away from your well of money, sex, and power? Are you thirsty enough to turn off your phone, your TV, and internet? The problem is that most of us seem to be easily amused and easily satisfied with the gods of lesser things. It's not that our carnal and fleshly appetites are so strong. It's that they are actually so weak. So we imagine that the next new dress or the next naked image or the next episode or the next strong drink or the next gaming level or the next promotion or the next risky endeavor or the next degree or the next affair, the next vacation or the next weight level, the next YouTube video or the next book. That will be the thing that slakes our thirst and satisfies our longing. And so we chase after the mirage of an oasis in the desert. And we never catch it. We never find it. We never lay hold of it. C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, can't you feel your soul thirsting for God? Interestingly, nowhere in this story do we see the woman acknowledging her thirst. Nowhere do we hear the woman asking Jesus for living water. And yet we know the Lord heard the desire of her heart and gave her what she asked for deeply because He proposed to her. And she said yes. How do we know? We know because she came to draw water from a well, and yet she's drawn into a spring of living water. She came shackled by guilt, but she was set free by saving grace. She came unloved by men, but she left truly, madly, deeply loved by God. She came in the grip of death, but she went away in the grace of life. She came born of the flesh and blood, but she went away born of water and the Spirit. She came as a boy toy, divorced, widowed, scorned by men, but she left as a bride, washed, radiant, and adorned by God. She came with a terrible past, but she left with a tremendous future. 
She came with no future, and she left with no past. She came dirty, and she went away clean. How? It was all of grace. It was not of works. It's the gift of God. As one poet in our generation says, grace takes the blame. It covers the shame, removes the stain. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. She found grace in the eyes of the Savior of the world. And perhaps you will too, if you haven't already. Now this grace is free to you. This living water costs you nothing. But it is not without cost, for it costs Jesus everything. Remember that it was the sixth hour when the woman went out to draw water from the well. It was the sixth hour when Jesus was thirsty and asked for a drink. The first time this happened, Jesus was resting at a well. But the second time it happened, Jesus was writhing in pain on the cross. Later in John's Gospel, it was the sixth hour, and from the cross, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. You know what thirst is? It's not the absence of water. It's not the absence of H2O. Thirst is the presence of curse. It is a sign of curses, of faith testing, of physical need. It's a sign of exile and deep spiritual longing. All of these thirsts come together in Jesus' thirst on the cross. He thirsted, but He thirsted for much more than earthly water. In the words of the psalmist, it was Jesus crying out that His soul thirsted for God, the living God. He thirsted for His Father. His whole being longed for Him in a dry land where there was no water. He stretched out His hands and He cried out in a parched land for His his Father. Jesus was cursed to a waterless death so that you might be blessed with the water of life. Jesus gave us water from above to deliver us from the waters from below. Jesus died thirsty so that you who thirst might drink deeply and thirst no more. Jesus poured out the water of life to save you from the dust of death. Truly, Jesus is the Savior of the world. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news for people who have lived bad news. The gospel is good news for people who have lived bad news. Today's message is for anyone who has ever been divorced or ditched or dissed or damaged or deserted. The gospel is for everyone who desires to be delivered by the Savior Jesus Christ. Now we have led you to the water, but we can't make you drink. But now that you know the gift of God, all you have to do is ask for it. And Jesus will give you the Holy Spirit, the spring of living water overflowing to eternal life. So let anyone who is thirsty come and let anyone who desires to take the water of life without price come and drink freely of this gift of God.